What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Undisciplined by Design podcast. This is a show where we talk about creativity and innovation through the lens of cross-disciplinary collaboration. Today's episode was recorded on location at McKinsey Design in Chicago, Illinois, and our guests are environmental graphic designer Danny Grimes and design consultant Wyeth Augustine Marcille. In this episode, we discuss the importance of keeping the end user in mind for all design projects, regardless of scale or type and the nuances of evolving from project-based work with specific design deliverables to being strategic consultants with design principles at the core of Creative Solutions. Hope you enjoy the episode. Well, hey, everybody. Uh, Welcome to the Undisciplined by Design podcast. My name is Aaron. I'm your host, and um, I'm a professor at the University of Cincinnati, teach classes on design thinking, innovation, and digital storytelling. And part of what I get to do as a result of that is meet with really awesome people across the country who are doing really cool things in the creative space and hear their stories and hear about places where disciplines and things in the creative world start to overlap and then the great things that come out of that. So I'm going to introduce our guests first and let them kind of tell us a little bit about who they are, and then uh, we'll go from there. And they're pointing at each other. No, you. No, you. No, you. I'll go for it. I got All you. right, man. All right. Take it away, Wyatt. <laughs> uh, yeah, my name is Wyatt Augustine Marcille. Uh, I'm a designer at uh, McKinsey Design, which is formerly Lunar Design. Um, we were acquired maybe four years ago um, and do just kind of all sorts of design here. And uh, yeah, excited to be on the podcast. Right on. Thank you. I'm Danny Grimes. I work at uh, Selbert Perkins Design. We do environmental graphics and wayfinding signage, the assortment. Yeah, did some co-ops here, ended up here after college. Right on. I love this place. So you two knew each other prior, but you weren't in the same program, right? When you were undergrads? We started in the same program. Okay. And we knew each other kind of from the get-go. Um, yeah. We lived uh, just a floor apart our freshman year of college, um, so we got to know each other very well at the beginning. Uh, and we both started in industrial design, but yeah. um, you took a different path in college. Yeah, I was in uh, industrial design. Couldn't, you know, had, had certain ideas about what it was. Once I got in it, I realized... Um, it wasn't what I thought it was, maybe. And uh, yeah, I saw some of the work that some of my other friends were doing in graphics and you know, made my way over. But yeah, it was weird going through all those transitions and then finding environmental graphics and kind of getting to apply those same ideas um, and the things I loved about industrial design, but into what I do now, Yeah, which is very graphic. Yeah. Do you think that and this is maybe even its whole own conversation, but would you say that environmental graphic design is something that is taught as a discipline or someone comes out of high school and says, I want to be an environmental graphic designer and I'll go to this school and do that. I had no idea what the heck it was for the first, I don't know, four years I was in school. Um, you know, we had a few projects in DAP that, you know, kind of touched on scale and talk, talked about, you know, um, functional legibility, uh, out in the real world. But, uh, no, it was the co-op that I got um, here at Silver Perkins. And from there, I kind of fell in love with learning something new in general that I wasn't going to learn in school. And then also um, kind of wrapping my head around this niche little industry that is so collaborative and colliding of so many different things. Yeah. yeah. And you're still solving a problem, right? For oh, a absolutely. user. So the, the general wayfinding of getting people around a space, but how to do that efficiently and how to do it, you know, Beautiful is kind of the afterthought, but how to do it in a way that uh, blends into the space and doesn't stand out too much, but then also, you know, is is inviting and something that's interesting and that you haven't seen before. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the work that you do, it's so public because it's in these giant spaces, right? Like stadiums yeah, and absolutely. malls and things like that. That it's really, it's kind of one of the most direct interactions that people have with mm-hmm. design. And it's really, I can, I can see it being criticized or like a lot <laughs> yeah. because it's so public <laughs> no and so many people like 
depend on it that I think mm-hmm. it's a really interesting medium. Yeah. A lot of, I mean, our audience is really hard to nail down sometimes. Um, like at a stadium, you're like, Oh, well, uh, that audience is huge. Um, and so kind of sometimes nailing down the audience is, is difficult, but also I like that part of the challenge, you know? Yeah. Oh, it's also interesting too, because it's, um, and you mentioned it kind of almost fades into the background and it mm-hmm. serves a function, but then it still needs to be beautiful. It's not like a consumer product that you can right. design and say, Hey, look, we're, this is the exchange that we're making with yep. you, right? Totally. You're buying this for this reason. And as long as it delivers on it, then you should be happy with it, right? Like it's almost just assumed just like it should work when I, you know, turn the light switch yeah, on. Yeah, totally. Or, yeah. Yeah. When people run into a space where like, well, how the hell do I get to the bathroom? You know, yeah. it's like, right. well, then we didn't do our job. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you're working at like a crazy scale that like not many industrial designers or graphic designers ever do. So there's definitely, there's gotta be an architectural and like spatial planning kind of aspect to it as well. I'm assuming. Well, we work very closely with interior designers and with architecture. I found myself using a lot of their jargon these days and, you know, I'm using words like egress and all that. I'm like, well, what's that? And I'm like, oh, it's an exit. It's definitely a challenge. You know, we never get it right on the first time. It's constantly yeah. going and going. We hear from the client, like they can't find the bathroom again. Right. And you know, so it's, it's always it's, the bathroom. Too. It's always the bathroom. <laughs> well, it's when there's the a most need. desperate scenario. Yeah. Like, right. Well, I think it's interesting you even make that distinction because, um, so in one of the classes that I teach every year is kind of like helping these students develop their first portfolio. And like, you know, it starts from a theoretical place of helping them understand like, well, what's the purpose of this tool? Even it's not just a website. You're telling a story. This is your place to put your brand stamp on it. Right. It's the same thing that we're trying to translate through to building a website. So I think it's really interesting that you're actually now on the opposite of it and saying like, well, I was doing that for how you work your way through a website and now I'm doing it for how space works. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So then if we think about even like, I think it's beautiful the way you've been able to kind of set this up. This is your day to day. That's your journey. Here's all the people. Here's the problem we're solving, but it's not in the form of a product. And then we think about, you know, your role as an industrial designer, even though it's evolving now that you're also a consultant, right? What would you say in response to that kind of, of how your evolution has gone? Yeah. I think one of the, the core understandings that I got from working in this job is the fact that there is an end user to anything. So no matter what kind of product service experience we're trying to make, it's, it's all about that end user. And it does, it's something that sounds obvious, especially to designers. It took me a long time to, to really understand that. And uh, it's one thing to kind of learn about it. And it's another thing to understand it and to kind of live it. A, a lot of what we do is like spending time, like teaching organizations to think about that end user, regardless of what industry it is, like that end user is kind of the most important part, what we need to focus on kind of all of the time. Yeah. Well, and and I think that, um, the term consultant gets thrown around a lot, just like the term innovation gets thrown around a lot. And sometimes there's total validity to it. You are a consultant and sometimes it's sort of like, well, you know, you're using that as a catch all for something. (laughs) Right. But you know, McKinsey is, is a consultancy in the purest form. Just be curious to hear kind of how you've grown and evolved in that. And and probably it's an experiment in progress still. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what I like to say a lot about McKinsey and design at McKinsey is this is all one big experiment, uh, and kind of everything we're trying is, is kind of brand new for everyone here, but it's it's yielded a lot of interesting results. And I think I'm an industrial designer second um, and kind of a consultant to a couple of different groups before that. So first to um, the rest of McKinsey, we still need to kind of like prove design's value um, within McKinsey and, and be able to show quantifiable results that it's still, it's it's a benefit for the company to continue investing in design. And then like when we do projects, we obviously need to support the client in whatever way uh, is necessary. So there's all of these kind of ways that we need to communicate our benefit before we can even design or like to set up the right space, the right kind of project, the right kind of scope 
before we can even start designing. So there's all of these kind of soft skills and, and messaging of design that I've learned over time uh, in order to give us the space to then go like design a really good product or service or experience. So it's this really kind of interwoven thing. They, they go hand in hand, but definitely learned a lot of consultant skills in the last couple of years. Like how does one sharpen their skill set to be ready to do that? Right. Like, so today you're working on a consumer good tomorrow. You're designing the best way to get to a bathroom and a stadium. Right. I mean, I think I'm kind of speaking to both of you with this, but I think either of you are at any given time getting thrown into like, all right, we have to really deliver and solve a challenge for somebody. And Oh, by the way, it should also be functional, beautiful, potentially award-winning. Right. (laughs) Yeah. How do you, how do you train that muscle? Getting thrown in and trusting your education and your knowledge and confidence has a lot to it. Fake it till you make it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to a certain extent. And then once you, you know, you watch others, you've got hopefully your some mentors that you're watching grow along with you and uh, learning from them and learning from your peers. Like I don't work with Wyeth, but I, I learn a lot from Wyeth. I think it's a lot of practice sometimes. Yeah, I, I would echo that. And just being thrown into as many different scenarios as possible and kind of trial by fire, whether it be like a client scenario that's interesting or you're working with a new team or a new person that's brought on. It's just a matter of getting reps at it and understanding like what stories work, what analogies. Uh, and that's not at all to say that I'm good at this yet, but, <laughs> uh, but yeah, trial by fire. Yeah. And I would add to that. I wonder if this is true for you too, but since we've become part of McKinsey, a lot of our clients have never really worked with design much <laughs> at all. Um, and we have like this uh, kind of exclusive design lingo that's kind of hard to crack sometimes, especially w- across like all of the disciplines within design. There's so many different variations of it and yeah, like totally. firm by firm, there's different variations of it. So there is this education and it's, it's kind of a disservice design is kind of done itself because we use so many different terms. Yeah. But there is that education beforehand about like, oh, uh, innovation garage is this or like branding <laughs> is this. Yeah, or, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so that's a lot of our work is, is doing kind of like the creative stuff, but but also understanding how to message it and how to share it yes. with the client. So it's not like thousand sticky notes on a wall. It's like, here's a presentation that and boils something down. Digestible down. Exactly. And something that uh, is attainable for right. them versus our design brains. Like we get yeah. it, but right. <laughs> you're right. Translating that to others yeah. is a whole nother story. Well, you're tapping into something too that I think is interesting because we we talk to folks from across multiple generations. We've had some conversations with design directors and principals that are, you know, in their early 70s and have decades long careers of doing an amazing yeah. set of work, right? Um, but what I'm noticing that I'd be curious to hear both of you weigh in on too is there used to be a mentality of like, no, no, let the design happen. Like we're going to go over here and kind of hide (laughs) and reveal it. And we actually don't want you poking around too much into this because it's sort of the mystique of it's better if you don't know, and just let us come out with the amazing thing. And I personally see a lot of places kind of backlashing against that to say like, we want to make our design process a lot more transparent. We're not necessarily going to give away all of our tricks, but we want you to feel like you were in it because that way you're more likely to buy in. And that's where that storytelling comes in too. Inherently, I think if you're edgy, educating your client on design processes, lingo, all of those things, you're kind of inviting them in to behind the veil, right? I think in a good way. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I would pitch it as a good thing too, but I I would be curious how you both feel about it because you know, you're trained in something and you're trained to be an expert Mm -hmm. in something and you want to maintain a level of like, yeah, no, I've, I went to school for this and it's not necessarily something anybody can do, but yeah, I do want you to appreciate it and maybe even invite you into what I'm doing. How do you feel about that? We'll see. We see a lot better results when we 
include a client like early and often and into the development phase. Uh, one of my coworkers here is formerly IDEO and uh, he worked there in a time where they did a lot of things uh, kind of in-house. All of the, the cooking was behind closed doors and they threw it over the fence. <laughs> and then w- what he says is just like a lot of those things wouldn't go anywhere. It'd be really beautiful. It would have all of the thought in the world behind it, but there'd be no ownership um, within the actual organization. And so there'd be no impetus to kind of like invest in it and like continue like driving it to the finish line where as here we our model is to be at the client's office four days a week. And so we co-develop this project from beginning to end. And ideally that creates a, a more of a sense of ownership and um, it allows the client to see like all of the recipes going in and what's driving the decisions. So I think in terms of making something get to the finish line, that like co-development is much more effective. But at the same time, I think there is something to be said about like having a space to do things behind the scene and not having necessarily a reason behind everything you're doing, but being able to to kind of explore not worry about like putting up a sketch that's unfinished on the wall and getting a bad reaction because it wasn't ready to be seen. Um, so I, I think there, there's benefit to both. And so, yeah, I, I could be swayed really either way, but I think both, it's kind of like a recipe that needs to come together to, to be most effective. I think it would be a solid ratio when you open up that, you know, transparency, you're giving the client the trust, you know, they're trusting you more that, you know, and so when you do stuff behind closed doors, they're like, well, they got it. You know, they've, they've already, you know, showed us that they can do this, this and this. They're like, oh, well, now I'm, uh, now I'm in the loop. You know, I think it makes them feel good sometimes, especially when they come into it, not knowing anything. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've seen it kind of both ways too, though, where we'll be on a client site and we'll ask someone who like has a really specific specialty to go do this one thing or, or develop something or work with us. And we'll get kind of grumbles about like, well, why am I doing your job for you oh, <laughs> or that kind of thing? Yeah. Huh. Um, but at the same time, we've heard from clients that are like, oh, I had no idea what this was or why other firms were doing this or like things just showed up on my desk. So it's like good to know like the thought process that goes into it. So uh, yeah, no, yeah. we're not just making stuff up. <laughs> right. Yeah. Not always just not, making not, stuff not up. Always. Yeah, not always. Sometimes those 11th hour random things that were the one that they get excited about and latch onto too, right? right. Yeah. Are there any things that, because again, both of you are working with such broad varieties, but you, at the end of the day, you've got a user, you're trying to solve a problem. And again, in the backdrop, hopefully make it beautiful too. You know, are there, are there any things that you've started to, to understand our core kind of North star type things or like, well, look these, if I stick to these principles, it's going to work nine times out of 10, no matter what the, the challenge. Absolutely. I, I think, um, just approaching everything as if you've never you just don't know anything about it. So I I think this was a little bit harder for me on things where it was like a product or a service that I'd used in the past. And so I came in with all of these assumptions or associations, but I think it's really important for me to completely step away from that and understand something from like the very beginning, very objectively and learn as much as I can from an outsider's perspective. And then since we do like all client work to like understand how the client's looking at it and like understand their history as much as possible, understanding why they're doing something to get all of the facts in front of me and then start approaching the problem. Uh, that's how I found most success. And I've seen other designers who are like, I don't want to know any of that. I just want to like start thinking about like the user and like, let's make the, make this happen. I'm definitely a person who needs like all of the pieces in front of me before I can like get going on a problem. Like would love to go straight to like CAD and making something like totally. as close as possible from the get go. But that's when you hang something up on the wall and a client comes in, they're like, what is that? Like that looks done. Um, mm. And I haven't seen anything about this. 
yeah. and we're like, no, 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 no. So like, there's been times where we'll do something in CAD because we feel like it's the right avenue to get us close. And then we'll like sketch over it and like put up just like a pen sketch. And it's like, what do you think I of see. this? Um, so that's a little bit of the secret sauce behind, but um, oh. definitely like understanding like what fidelity when it's, I've learned through a couple like difficult lessons, yeah. that, like yeah. too much too soon can be bad. I have a theory, but I'd be curious what you guys think about this. Um, why is it that they would rather see it as a pen sketch as opposed to like this really well rendered high fidelity thing at that stage? The finality of it. Yeah. of something that has the nice shading and, and lighting. And if it's in, you know, the right setting, then it's, they're like, Oh, well this is like tied up and done. And that's, yeah. you know, not really the case. Right. Yeah. Especially with like the tools, like interior design renderings and like key shot mm -hmm. industrial design renderings, they can look so real that to someone who doesn't understand like all of those tools and the work that goes into it. And the fact that it is just a computer rendering, it feels like it can't change. Um, yeah. and it feels like maybe it's like made somewhere and this is a picture of it. And it just feels like very set in stone when those kind of things happen. But mm -hmm. if there's a pen drawing on the table, you can give someone a Sharpie and they can draw over it and show you what they want or like what they're thinking. And mm -hmm. so there's just much more room, I think in, in someone's head, to like change that. We use Illustrator quite a bit. Uh, we've been moving more into SketchUp and uh, even rendering out into Lumion. And so these beautiful fly throughs and renderings and all of that. And so a lot of our clients want, you know, concept signage rendered beautifully mm -hmm. in the SketchUp model on the building. You know, they want it to be integrated with the interior stuff. The time that it takes to to build all of that and then to then to change it is, is huge sometimes. Yeah. But then at the same time, when we work in Illustrator and you're not able to move your model around and get the shots that you want. So it's, it's interesting using the different programs to create the fidelities, but then sometimes it really does bite us in the ass. Well, I mean, I think there's, there is a, an interesting psychological thing that goes on. If you show like you show me a sketch of yeah. something and I feel like, Oh, you've invited me into a conversation about yep. this thing with you. Oh, I exactly. would do this. Whether it took you 20 hours or 20 minutes, you yep. feel almost like, Oh, well, even if I don't love it, you put a lot of work into that. Right. Mm-hmm maybe I better not say that. And like yeah. they self edit That's the real. feedback, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it sort of harkens back to, you know, why if you were talking about approaching everything with sort of a beginner's mindset, not, not necessarily assuming to know anything, you know, what is the value of that naive mindset? Because I think that what we're hoping to inspire a lot through even this podcast, right. Is to invite people into the conversation who might not see themselves even as necessarily, they wouldn't identify as a designer or if they did, they wouldn't say I'm an industrial designer or I'm a graphic designer. Right. They would just say like, yeah, I feel like I'm creative. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm in the design industry or maybe I want to be, I'm a student and I want to get into design, but I'm not an industrial designer or graphic designer. Like, you know, what's the value that that naive, but curious mindset can bring? It's just not missing things. Um, it's, it's like when you visit a new place and you walk the places and you see things that locals might not see, especially because we do all of this client work where there's people who have designed X, Y, or Z for 20 years. And so they know the ins and outs and everything there is to, to make this one thing or, or about this one industry that they're just going to be prone to missing new, interesting ideas or ways of doing things. And so by starting from total scratch and, and just looking at everything like with that visitor's mindset, you're going to be able to pick up on things that a client um, who's been doing it forever might not see. And I, so I think that's like totally where the value of just coming in with zero 
perspective. I get told from clients to do things a lot. They're like, well, we need a sign here that says this. And so I like to reverse engineer that and and say, okay, I can do that, but but why? And I like going back and, and getting that main problem because I really like getting to the heart of it and saying, well, why here? Why do you think it needs to be that message? What actually is going on here that needs to be addressed? And most of the time I have to do that because they're just like, oh, this is the solution when really it doesn't have to be. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like the, the Henry Ford analogy that they tell you early, you know, in, in school about this, you know, like, well, if I had asked people what they wanted, you know, from transportation, they would have said a faster horse. Right. If I, if I, if I didn't right. what if I, add more legs or something. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, you, you can't go to a group of people and say like, yeah. um, what do you want a car to be like when a car doesn't exist? Right. 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 And what would make your horse better? Well, make it faster. Right. No, I mean, actually what would make your ability to get someplace yes. faster, better. Exactly. Right. Yep. Uh, I have a group of students doing a project right now. Actually, we have a, a transdisciplinary studio on what the future of work is. And mm-hmm. one of the assumptions that everybody has when they hear about that topic, and especially the fact that we're doing it in partnership with a, a design and architecture firm is, oh, you're going to design the future work space, like the future office or the future desk. And what we're really actually looking at is what is the future of human behavior mm-hmm. and how will that trickle into work? But then also how will that affect all these other things? And so had a group of students from all these different backgrounds that were doing sort of some exploratory ethnography and user interviews. And we were talking just yesterday in class and we're like, yeah, we just don't feel like we're getting the answers. They're specifically exploring what they think emerging tech and autonomous cars will do to commutes Mm -hmm. and then how commutes will become maybe a part of the workday or maybe be eliminated altogether and what those blurrings will be. So they went about it with a really great approach of asking all of these different people from different demographics and different cities, even doing these 10 minute interviews with them about their commute. And what they really wanted to find out from them was what would you do if you could get back the time that you're commuting and what they were sort of under the surface asking is like, for instance, if you were on public transit, that was so robust that you could do a telehealth appointment or work out Mm -hmm. or get dressed on a train even. Right. But because of the way they phrased the question and asked people, essentially, what would you do if your commute were, you know, more productive? People just kind of gave them answers about like doing audiobooks or like somebody even said, well, I'd do more Sudoku's, you know, and they, they were really, disappointed and frustrated, but by probing more into like, well, what did you actually want to find out from them? They sort of self-realized we didn't ask the right question. We should ask them, what would you do if you didn't have your commute time? You know, and you see them thinking about it and they had actually done some good primary research and found the point at which someone gets frustrated with their commute is when it's 35 minutes or longer. And they're actually going back out to do another set of interviews now. And the reframing was ask those same people or different people, what would you do if you could get an hour back in your day and do anything with it, right? Right? Like, what would you do with an extra hour in your day? And you might get some interest. They might tell you they would sleep. They might tell you they would work out. They might tell you they'd spend more time with their kids. Right. And that becomes then how you would layer on. Oh, well, guess what? Autonomous transportation might actually give you that hour from your half hour on the front end and back end of the day back. And it could look like all of these ways. What do you think about that? Right. Versus coming in with like, well, okay, well, what, what can we do to make your commute better? What can make this sign better? Right. It goes on the front of your building. Right. Totally. Why is there a sign there? Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Do we need that sign? Yeah, <laughs> yeah for and, sure. And when I start thinking about that, uh, and I think this is a result of spending time at a place like McKinsey where numbers uh, have like long been like the pure way of communicating or like telling whether or not a design's a good thing. 
And so when I start hearing about like, how would you spend that hour? And I think about like people sleeping more or reading more or working out more, like how might you be able to quantify like that um, additional time in someone's life or, or like a population? Like when I start thinking about that, it's definitely me realizing that that's like a product of working here in like a mm-hmm. management consultancy. And I hadn't thought like that before. It's, it's interesting in the frame of this conversation to like understand like what the last two, two years have done to my brain. Building on that then really, I mean, are there any other of those kind of aha type things? Are the synopses firing now? Like, oh yeah. And then this happened and this happened. Yeah. I mean, uh, not as specific as that, but I, I definitely remember being a co-op and trying to talk to a client about a design and just breaking down. It was like, it was like a startup client. Um, there's two of them. They were grad students. So like uh, no disrespect to them, but like the lowest bar for like a client conversation. It was even like a WebEx. It was like not even in person. And I just could not for the life of me explain anything. Uh, I couldn't get my name out straight. But over the last two years, um, I've been just thrown into the ring like we were yeah. talking about earlier. And I'll have conversations in front of a room of senior clients, like 20 senior clients and the CEO's there. And he's looking at a sketch I did or like a presentation that we put together. And I'm not unfazed, but uh, just the the difference um, being thrown into that fire and into those scenarios time after time, uh, it's made a huge difference. Um, and it's something yeah. that I don't think I left school with. Definitely, that's one of my biggest uh, outcomes from working here for the last two plus years. Hmm. Going back to what you were talking about before, of would it even started that conversation about the start with why kind of thing. How have you even maybe through failure learned the most effective way to push back on that? Because, you know, they're the client, they're paying, right? Yeah. And even if you're right, quote unquote, you've still got to make it feel like they're right and they're included in the decision, right? Like, yeah. have, you, have you learned even the hard way how to nuance those things of saying, well, look, yeah, I can make that sign for you, but what are you trying to accomplish with it? Well, what if we did this? I think I've just recently learned strategies um, to approaching those conversations where it's kind of, it could amount to like, uh, he said, she said, that kind of thing. And there's nothing to kind of ground a conversation on. Uh, and so this last project that I was on, it was like a long, like six month project, which uh, is one of the longest projects I've ever worked on. So uh, it had plenty of those challenges. And there was one specific moment where I was asked what I thought about like a pretty minor change. And I said something about like, I like this one because X, Y, and Z. Um, And it was very much like my like design aesthetic kind of perspective, which only goes so far. Um, I'm the design expert, quote unquote. But at the same time, like I haven't worked in this industry for 20 years. And so after that, one of the, my coworkers on the project pulled me aside and said, Hey, when you have a conversation like that, it it shouldn't be about like what you want or what you like. It should be a fact-based conversation and Mm. it should pull in like all of these different factors that we're, we're looking at. So the consumer, the business, like the cost of the thing we're trying to make and like the ease of manufacturing, like all of these things, like that's how you should root like any conversation like that. Um, And that way you get away from like he said, she said, and it's Mm. more of like, there's an objective right answer and here's why, and here's like how I can support that. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's something that's like still very new to me and doesn't come naturally, especially going to design school where there's all of these soft things about like what makes a design good or bad. Uh, It's been like, I think that's been a really like important thing to learn recently. Like if this is objectively the right answer, it's got a lot more sway. Whether or not a client goes with that at that point uh, is another conversation. Yeah. It's like, all right, well, if it'll take 10 more weeks to get that material, then let's do 10 more weeks. And then we're like, all right, well, you win. 
and then we yeah. like. <laughs> I think it's really interesting because you mentioned earlier the idea of uh, decisions being analytical and, and numbers based. And that is, that does kind of almost fly in the face of a traditional critique in design school, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Of just like, well, I like what you did here. I mean, you even hear people in authority using words like, well, I really like what you did here. And, and to be honest, like that's always bothered me. And I've actually tried to self edit when giving feedback to students mm-hmm. about creative work too, because on the one hand, you want to say nice things. If, if you do really like it, you want to yeah. compliment mm-hmm. it, but then actually realizing like, well, if I reinforce to you that what I like is what you should do and that's the reason to do it, then actually that's just teaching you to like make the things that people like versus, well, I really think that you effectively did this here. Mm-hmm. Or I think yeah. that the way that you did this thing actually really helped solve that problem that you were trying to solve. Like that's right. not quite numbers based, but then the next level is yeah. when you are talking about being a management consultant who designs, it does have to be numbers based, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think even to the point about like the like aesthetic critique where good feedback is uh, actionable, like to, to your point and working in this context, it's something that we kind of need to do internally within like our group of designers before we take it to a client, because those like kind of aesthetic critiques are something that like a lot of our clients aren't necessarily sensitive to. So we need to show up with something that's mm-hmm. thought through already and like more baked than you might with a, a client who's got a lot more design experience um, and then have the, the kind of the numbers conversation still with a little bit of the like aesthetic, like, is this the right direction? But like much more focused on like the facts with just like our client set. Yeah. There's a a colleague that talks about this to an extreme and I actually really do respect the way that he talks about it. I think there's times when maybe this is a limiting factor, but he talks about things as if it should almost be agnostic of that kind of feedback and looked Mm -hmm. at as like this clinical science almost. Right. And there's an argument to be made for that. I think that if you go too clinical, you actually lose some of the magic that is the creative, right? The human. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I would never personally advocate for going all in on making design or creativity clinical, Mm -hmm. but I respect also the need to kind of pull it back a little bit from there and and bring some of that in and say, well, let's not use words like I really like what you did there, because that's one person's opinion who happens to come from this potentially biased standpoint and with these set of inputs. Right. And for trying to create something that's broadly appealing, it should be based on facts of what it does. Right. I was never allowed to say I like in critiques. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes total Renee, sense. That's a good rule. The AC word very mm. much was, uh, you're not allowed to say I like. You yeah, have to great. be very objective. And of course, you can be like, hey, I like that. Right. right. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. I, I would uh, like categorize that almost as that's informal feedback, yeah. right? Like personally, I really like what you did yeah. here, you know, and maybe even in sometimes it's appropriate to say, I personally like what you did here, but it's probably not the right thing yeah. for this. Yeah. Right. There's a study that McKinsey did and I don't need to plug it too hard, um, but it was basically studying like the correlation between companies success and like how invested in design they actually are um, by measuring like, is there someone on your board representing design or does your mission statement talk specifically? about the user, like that kind of thing. And it just showed like a really strong correlation to heavy investment in design and like financial profit. Well, I think specifically referencing McKinsey, what's interesting is that, you know, working in an academic unit that is cross-disciplinary as well. So, you know, we're not specific to just design. I happen to work with a lot of designers and on design adjacent projects, but Mm -hmm. actually I'm pulling in people from all these different disciplines too. A lot of times even trying to explain to the leadership of our academic unit why it's really valuable to have a core of creatives on this Mm -hmm. project that's going to drive economic growth or drive user growth in some area. They wouldn't by default just think, oh yeah, the good design work is going to help that or like, 
like you should invest a lot of effort or put a lot of students in this class or this project who are creative, they would assume we need some business analytics people and some economics folks and maybe some accountants to figure out the numbers. When I'm able to sell to them, why not? Let us do it this way. It usually comes in the form of like a McKinsey report or something like that because it for them has the credibility of like, okay, I didn't believe you when I thought you're always pushing for the creative or you always want to be in some new space because you like kind of exploring the unknown. But that doesn't always work, Aaron, right? But then when you can show them, well, here's this McKinsey report that actually shows, you know, the analytics behind it and the the growth numbers. And it's also got some brain science built into it that kind of gives it credibility in that way. Then all of a sudden there's more freedom to do it. So I've grown to respect those disciplines that maybe before felt to me kind of like, well, that's great that somebody else wants to do that. I don't necessarily want to have anything to do with it. Now I kind of have grown to say like, well, there's a really valuable part of that. And I want to lean into actually understanding how to do that better for myself, maybe even, right. you know. And, and speaking like specifically about that study, it, it was externally facing, um, but I think a lot of its benefit was like pointed inward and for like to generate more support for design at McKinsey, mm-hmm. because um, as designers, we kind of need to like pitch our value within like the, our own company mm-hmm. in order to, like, to get projects and continue to prove ourselves. So um, it's, it's definitely meant to be a tool for like designers everywhere to like build like kind of just I guess worldwide um, acceptance of design as like a, an actual like financial benefit to a company, but also to to help us kind of like continue to grow design within McKinsey. So in that respect, we kind of have two clients, um, McKinsey itself, and then like the client we're actually working with, always trying to like solidify design as as a benefit. Well, thanks for doing that. Because obviously, it's, it's it's benefited me. It's benefited others. So you know, <laughs> thank you to the the folks that have uh, given us this space to record out of and everything else. Yeah, like you all. Thank you, McKinsey. Yeah, yeah, thanks, McKinsey. Like yeah. Right. When you mentioned um, the idea that like people might not think of themselves as creative or as mm-hmm. designers, I think we're going to start to see like a change in that as design becomes more um, generally accepted and, and more kind of, uh, yeah, just like broadly accepted because when we're working with these like really, really smart McKinsey people who have no background in creative fields or design at all, and we teach them like the basics of design thinking, like it's scary, like the the things those people are capable of. So I think when people from more traditional backgrounds start understanding like the benefits of design thinking and can combine it with a more um, like hypothesis driven approach, I think you're going to see a lot more people who have kind of this dual perspective and like who are just like really, really smart and maybe don't have like the same kind of like hard skills in like CAD and stuff like that. But I think that's going to be a a trend we're going to see in the future that I think is really interesting. I see that too. And I, what I am very curious about is like, I would love to even hear if you're able to think of some stories of how that happened or where it worked, because it's, you know, academia a lot of times lags a little bit behind. And so you're seeing it when you're noticing like, okay, we go around the country and talk to people that are doing this work and they're either calling it out directly like you are, or they're even just using language that says kind of sounds to me like you're, you're creating a team of creative design thinkers and you're just calling them designers. Like nobody's Mm -hmm. even called a certain role anymore. So it feels like that's maybe what we should be preparing these students for. Right. Right. Um, but that's not necessarily made its way all the way downstream sure. yet, you mm-hmm. know, but I think we might start to see design less as a discipline and more as like a capability that like lots of different, um, functionalities can like bring in when it's relevant to them. And I think there's a number of people them at, uh, at McKinsey, but there's one person specifically that I've worked with a lot who was the like engagement manager of my very first project here. Um, and it was his 
first design project. So we were both totally just fish out of water, just not ready. And so we kind of struggled through that project together. And I was just on a project with him recently and he's been working more in design. So I should uh, specify, he has no design background. Uh, He's like MBA just a like purely business person um, doesn't like dress like a designer, nothing like that. He would say there's not a creative bone in his body. Um, but I was just on a project with him recently and we were standing in a room with like all of these clients and getting some hard questions and he was fielding design questions and, and mm-hmm. being able to talk to the user and like all of these like soft things and combine them with like his like super deep MBA, like business knowledge of numbers. And he could answer any question from like the soft things that, like we were brought in to do to like, here's the brass tacks. And it was like, this is, yeah, that's scary. Um, I'm not, not worried about like design jobs going away, but I, I think there's going to be like more capability in organizations, not like just design groups. So like I might say in the future, there'll be like less like opportunities for designers and mm. more opportunities for people who have design capability. The ability to come in and be that sharp and have like this extra set of tools in your toolkit is going to become that much more valuable, right? Yeah. You know, we're all kind of osmosising like all of yeah, our knowledge yeah. between each other to we create like this super team that we got. And, and so maybe there is like a separation between like thinking about design as a tool and thinking about design as a capability where uh, an MBA might be able to pick up like a design sure. thinking toolkit and, yeah. and apply that and be able to speak to it. But uh, there's always going to be like uh, like like depth of knowledge, mm-hmm. design capability needed to do like, like all of that aesthetic and thinking about like the user and being able to build that whole story. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's going to go away. That's like a lot of soft skills, a lot of thought and a, just a different approach that like not, everyone is capable of. I mean, as somebody who's teaching design thinking as a, a tool and methodology to non-designers in many cases, it's an easy thing to start poking into of like, mm-hmm. well, you know, you're devaluing our discipline, right? But I think the way you're talking about it and the language that you're giving to it is really important. Um, there's no, in in my mind at least, there's no reason why the elevation of the value of a skill set and a set of tools um, should take anything away from mm-hmm. the masters of their craft. I, I see that as a positive. Yeah, you know? yeah. I totally agree. I, I think design only stands to, to win from more people using their tools. Thanks so much. Yeah. Uh, really Thanks appreciate it. It's a, it's a, it's a privilege to be able to just get to meet and interact with people like you throughout the work that Jason and I get to do, but then to top it all off with now actually having the ability to capture this and share it with other people too. So Wyeth, Danny, thank you both. Uh, thanks again for having us. We just kind of rolled into Chicago about two hours ago and this yeah. has been a great start. So great. would love to continue the conversation again anytime you're up for it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Great. All right. Thanks for checking out the Undisciplined by Design podcast and we will catch you next time. Well, hey everybody. Thanks for checking out the Undisciplined by Design podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, you'll consider giving us a review and helping us spread the word. We're still a relatively new podcast and we'll be adding new episodes. So please be sure to check us out on all the channels and watch for new episodes coming soon. Thanks.